Hi, this is Dr. John Ankerberg. I invite you to dig into God's Word today with my dear friend, the late Dr. Wayne Barber, as he leads you verse by verse through the Bible. Galatians chapter 3, 26 through 29. You read along with me as I read aloud God's inerrant, infallible, and inspired Word. He says in verse 26, For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ and you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to promise. I am so grateful that the scripture has made this turn. The last time we were together, we looked at what the law was all about. We saw that it does have a purpose. We learned from Galatians chapter 3 and studying these verse by verse that it couldn't produce the Holy Spirit, verses 1 through 5. It cannot do that. Only Christ can. It couldn't produce salvation in verse 6 through 9. It puts people under a curse in verse 10 through 12. And then 15 through 18, it could not in any way alter the Abrahamic covenant that was given to Abraham. But it had its purpose, and it's so interesting to me. God used it for a specific reason. We found out that that purpose was only temporary in verses 19 through 25, until the seed came. And that seed, of course, as we've seen in verse 16 of chapter 3, is the Lord Jesus Christ. It is in Christ, not in the law, that we find salvation. The law sets a standard. It was usable to God because it provokes sin, it exposes sin. It sets a standard that no man can live up to. He's speaking here of the Ten Commandments, that particular moral law of God. The Lord Jesus came as a man. He that gave the law came as a man and fulfilled that very law. And then he took its, its penalty, which was death. All of us were born under the penalty of spiritual death. And, and yet he took that penalty for us, went to the cross, paid a debt he did not owe, we owed a debt we could not pay, resurrected the third day, ascended, and now sends His Spirit to live in us. And every time we say yes to Him, the law is consistently being met by the love that He produces. And as Romans so beautifully puts it in Romans chapter 8 and verse 3, it says, for what the law could not do, and I love the beautiful way this is put, weak as it was through the flesh, God did sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh, so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Now, in Christ Jesus, we are made sons of God by faith. That's what we're going to look at today. It is through Christ that we're set free from the bondage to the law. We're completely set free. So when a person chooses to go back and be religious again, he's just simply chosen his flesh over choosing Jesus to be Jesus in his life. When we trust Christ as our Savior, we enter the family of God. We are now the children of Abraham, but much more than that, we are the sons of God by faith. What does it mean to be a son of of God. Do you realize this morning that if you're a believer, you're a, a son of God? And he puts it exactly that way. That's the phrase used to characterize believers. Well, we're going to talk about sonship today. The law can't provide it, 
But in Jesus, we have sonship in the family of God. First of all, as sons, we have an eternal destiny. Oh, man, this is so exciting. It says in verse 26, For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Now, when he says, for you are all, the word he uses there is a little word, pas, P-A-S. Pas means each and every one of you and all of you when put together. And you say, well, we know that. Now, wait a minute, wait a minute. I'm saying that for a reason. He says, you are all, <clears throat> both Jewish believer and Gentile believer. You're all sons of God. Now, that statement would have been very acceptable to the Gentiles. Actually, overwhelming. But I would imagine it would have been a hard pill to swallow if you were a Jewish believer. They never saw the Gentiles as being included in their covenants. Remember verse 7 and 8? Paul's already addressed this in chapter 3. He says, Therefore be sure that it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. Then he said, The Scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, All nations, and Israel was not a nation at that time, all nations will be blessed in you, Jew and Gentile. So everyone that's put their faith into Christ, whether Jew or Gentile, are all sons of God. He says, for you are all sons of God through faith, in Christ Jesus. And that term, sons of God, tells us volume. You say, Wayne, how do you get so much out of word? No, it's just the way the Greek is, 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 is so specific. <clears throat> the word sons of God there, the word sons is the key word. It's equivalent to the sons of Abraham in verse 7, but it's much higher than that. We're sons of God. <clears throat> the meaning is a bit clear, hidden, but it's very clear when it's understood. The word sons is the plural form of the word yos. H-U-I-O-S. That's a Greek word. <clears throat> Excuse me. To help you understand this word, we must look at some other words because in the Greek language, there are several words to denote a child in the family. The first one we want to look at is the word technon. Technon, is, it means a birth child. In other words, it bears the image of the father. I guarantee you, I've already seen the pictures of Jim's granddaughter, <laughs> And uh, I can see Jim in her. I really can. Right in her eyes, right across here. And, of course, he wouldn't admit that at all. Uh, he's not going to be worth anything for a long time now. The second word is the word nepios, as you see on the screen, which means a baby that's unable to walk and unable to talk. And then, thirdly, the word is padian, which refers to a child that is growing but certainly needs a lot of instruction. Our word, however, is eos. It, it stresses the maturity of a child. It's a child who is absolutely in sync with his father. Everything the child does is a reflex of the will of his father. It refers to a mature child. Now Jesus is always in scripture, ho hios. He's never called any, anything else when it comes to his title. He's the son of God. He's eternally the son of God. He came to earth as the son of man. He's never called the technon of God. He's never called the nepios of God. He's never called the padian of God. It's always dios of God. He is only called the technon of Mary once. Because you see, he was the birth child of the virgin Mary. But he's always called the eos of God, the, the mature son of God. Hebrews says that everything he did was a reflex of the father. He and the father were one. Now with this in mind, isn't it interesting 
that Paul chooses under the leadership of the Holy Spirit of God to call all of us that have, have become believers as Ios of God, the mature sons of God. Think about it for a second. Think about it for a second. Did you live that way this past week? Did everything that you do this past week, was it a reflex of the Father? Every word that came out of your mouth, was it a reflex of the heart of God? Did your, did your conversation and speech, was it wrapped in the love that when Jesus spoke, always had that there? You see, but yet we're called Hohios. None of us, none of us have arrived to the place of maturity to where we move and we act in a, as a reflex of the Father. Those who have trusted Christ as our Savior are not called Nepios in Galatians 3, as they are, some of them, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 1. Paul tells them, you're little babies that won't come out of the nursery. That's not what Paul refers to us as in Galatians 3. Not only that, Padean is not our terminology that he uses there, or his terminology. In Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 13, he uses that word to describe those believers. He's not calling us technon, as in verse 28 of chapter 4 in Galatians. He calls us now there's a reason it's used right there and for this purpose. By using the word yos, there's a wonderful truth that when we got saved, there's a process that begun the moment Christ came to live in our heart. We are destined one day to be in total oneness with Him. Even though that's the title given to us positionally now, one day experientially we will walk that way with God. So what he's given us here is a preview of what we'll be one day. In Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 5, it says he predestined us, that's a good word, to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will. The word for adoption is the word eothesia, eothesia. It, it, it's, it's the word that takes that word eos, which is our word, mature sons, and adds with it tithemi, which means to place, to place in a position of sonship. We are predestined to sonship. Now take this to Romans chapter 8, verse 19, and you begin to learn a little bit about this. In Romans 8 and verse 19, it says this, For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. Now, one of these days, we're going to be revealed as to who we really are. We're masked with a body of human flesh right now, and inside of us is the Spirit of God. And one day it's going to be revealed that we are the mature sons of God. However, look at this. In Romans chapter 8, verse 23, just drop down if you're in Romans 8 with me, and look what it says. It says, and not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, that's believers, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons. Then look what he equates it with, the redemption of our body. We see that our adoption is a process. Even though we're given the title as mature sons now, we in no way have arrived there. But there's going to come a day at the redemption of our body when we get a glorified body that we are going to arrive there. And then experientially, we will be like Him. We'll never be God. There are two absolutes. One is there is a God, and two is what? You're not Him. I, you write that down. You'll never be Him. I'll never be Him. We're not going to become little gods, but we'll be like Him. We'll be like Him. It says we eagerly await the adoption as sons. Now, there's a day coming. There's a day coming. The Apostle Paul talked about it in Philippians when he says, I look forward to the upward call of God. 
He was called from heaven on the Damascus Road. He'll be called to heaven one day, and he was already hearing that beckoning call. He knows where he's headed. And on that day, on that day, he's going to transform, he says, our, our body, our, our humble estate. We will that day be glorified. On that day, our will and his will will be one. I want you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 8. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 8, down through verse 12. I want you to see this as it's worked out. It's a beautiful hope that each of us have, a beautiful hope. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 8. And Paul has been talking to a church that knows nothing about Christianity. They're babies, they're immature, everything they do, they just want to be appeased, they want their flesh to be satisfied, and Paul deals with them all through Corinthians about this. In the verses 1 down through verse 7, many people call this, this whole chapter, a chapter on love. No, sir, it is not. It is an indictment to a church that knows nothing about it. And what he's trying to show them is, what you're doing has nothing to do with the Christianity you profess. And he says in verse 8, Love never fails. He breaks his, his, his chain of thought. He's not talking now relationships one to one. Now he's talking about God's love for them. Even though Corinth was upside down, God's love would not fail them. He says God's love never fails. But if there are gifts of prophecy, they'll be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. For now we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, now some great scholars, much smarter than I am, say that that means the Word of God. And I want to challenge that. I do not think it means the Word of God. I do not think that at all. And I'll show you why. It says when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away with. Now, the, now in verse 11, when I was a child, I used to speak as a child, think as a child, reason as a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. He's talking about his salvation. There was that time of coming of spiritual age. And you put away religion. You put away the ABCs. And you walk in a wonderful relationship with Christ. And that's what salvation is. Putting away childish things. But then in verse 12. For now we see in a mirror dimly. But then. Now you see now. Look at the time words there. Now and then then. When's the then? When the perfect comes. He's already told you. When the perfect comes we will see how? Face to face. Oh man. If you ever get excited about that, there's going to come a day we're going to stand and we're going to see the Lord Jesus face to face in all of His glory. I love that song. I can only imagine it. We sang a couple of weeks ago. That's, we don't know what we'll do at that time. We have no idea. Somebody says, I'll sing, I'll praise, I'll, who knows. It's just going to be a wonderful time. But when we see Him face to face, it says, now, right now, I know in part. That's all I know. I'm so glad Paul said that. He included himself. He said, we, I know, as a matter of fact, he said, I know in part. I love it when people walk up to me and say, Wayne, what about this? What about that? And I can say, man, I don't know. I just know in part. <laughs> it just makes me feel better anyway. <laughs> now I know in part. We don't have all the answers. My goodness, we don't have all the answers. We have just enough to get us through this life and just enough what God wanted to tell us. But you just wait what's coming after that. Now I know in part, but then when? When the perfect comes, when I see him face to face, I shall know fully, just as I have also have been fully known. You realize what he's saying? The Lord Jesus has fully known us and fully loved us since before the foundation of the world. Why? Because to know is to love. 
He has fully loved Wayne Barber since before the foundations of this world. Do you think I can commit a sin today that catches him off guard? He knew about it long before I was ever created. He knew you. He knew me. He loved us in spite of us. Can you believe that? He loved us and he fully loved us and fully knew us. But there's going to come a day when we see him. And in that moment, in that moment when we see him, we're going to know him as he's already known us. We don't know him that way now. You know how I know? Because we don't love him fully right now. Just by, just by the looks on your faces when I ask how many of you were a reflex of the Father in everything you did this past week tells me you hadn't arrived either, just like the Apostle Paul said. You see, we haven't gotten to that point yet. We don't fully know him. If we fully knew him, we would fully love him. And in that moment when we see him face to face, we're going to know him as he has always fully known us. I don't know how that's going to happen, but in that very second of knowing him, we're going to love him as he has fully loved us. And in that moment when we see him face to face, that upward call of God, that glorification of our body, the redemption of our body, in that moment, my will and your will and his will will become one will and we will walk together forever and ever as the mature sons of God, a reflex of the Father. Now that's what he's talking about. Now do you realize, do you understand what's coming? But do you also realize we already have that position? We haven't experienced it yet, but it's our position. It means that right now, when it's no longer me but Christ in me, I get to experience the full privileges of being an adult son of the living God. I get to walk in the joy that Jesus said, I want you to have my joy. I get to walk in his peace. I get to experience what he experienced as the true son of God, the reflex of the Father. If I choose to go back under religion, if I choose to go back after the flesh, I forfeit that privilege. My privileges are only in the Lord Jesus Christ. But one day, one day, when I see him face to face, in that moment, I'm going to become like him. I'll be honest with you. I'll be so glad to shed this old presence of flesh, won't you? I've been delivered from its penalty, and daily he's seeking to deliver me from its power. But one day we're going to be delivered from the presence of sin. We're not going to have to deal with all the garbage that the flesh has to put up with. Churches, this, it won't be churches. It'll be one church, one body of Christ standing before God who is holy and will be a reflex of the Father forever and ever and ever. It'll never happen down here, but it will happen one day. And what he's saying is here to these believers, you want to go back up under law? You think the law produces anything like this? You want to walk in the full adult privileges of sonship in the Lord Jesus Christ? You can't do that and go back up under the law. All you have is a religion that denies the power thereof. If you want to, have, if you want to walk in that sonship, if you want to walk in the privileges of that sonship, then you have to come to that place of abandonment to Him and saying, yes, Lord, yes, Lord, yes, yes, Lord, and live that way. And then He manifests Himself in you. That's when we walk in the full adult privileges of being a son in the family of God. Positionally, we're there. Experientially, we're not there yet. But when our bodies are redeemed one day, we'll be like Him forever and ever and ever. He says we are sons of God by faith in Christ Jesus. Believers are sons of God by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, not in the law. Well, are you walking in the privileges of sonship? Are you living in the privileges of sonship? What is a lot of people can quote scripture and tell you about freedom, but they live in bondage every day because they're not willing to say yes to the very one 
who can help them enjoy the privileges of sonship. Well, that's the first thing. We have an eternal destiny. A process began. One day, we will arrive at the position He's already given to us. Secondly, as sons, we have a clear identity. We have a clear identity. You want to know what the common denominator of Christianity is? He's going to tell you right here. Verse 27. For all of you who are baptized into Christ, look at this, have clothed yourselves with Christ. That's interesting and powerful. We need to understand that phrase. There are two meanings of the word baptism in Scripture. The first meaning is water baptism. A believer being immersed into water is something he does as a public testimony. This comes after the fact of what happened inwardly. He does it now outwardly. This is the first act of Christian witness that a person has amongst his friends. And if you go back to the book of Acts, the first church there was the Jewish believers. And when they would be baptized, wherever, mostly the Jordan River, when they would be baptized and came up out of that water, the people wrote them off. They were signed as if they were dead. They were disinherited from the family. And it was a separation from that which was behind, and it was an entering into that which has become totally new. Many have made the mistake of thinking that water baptism has anything to do with salvation. It does not. They fail to explain what Paul says in 1 Corinthians Chapter 1, verse 17, when he says, For Christ did not send me to baptize. <laughs> to me, anybody, it's a no-brainer if you just read the Scripture. But to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, that the cross of Christ should not be made void. Water baptism is not a part of the gospel. He said, I came to preach the gospel. Matter of fact, he goes on to say, I don't know if I baptized any of you. <laughs> and it's not, it's not a big deal to him. It's somebody else. That's their act of public witness. What he came to do was to preach the gospel. If water baptism is a part of the gospel, then all of Galatians needs to be thrown out of your Bible because Galatians has already shown us that there's not any work of human flesh that can any way add to what Christ has done for us on the cross. Only faith alone in Christ alone is our salvation. But the other meaning of baptism is what he has here. The other meaning is our spiritual baptism that takes place at salvation. At the very moment you receive Jesus, you're immersed into Him. You're immersed into His death, His burial, His resurrection, into His presence, into His power. You're, you're, you're immersed into oneness with Him. By Paul using the phrase, baptized into Christ, not baptized into water, but baptized into Christ, then you know immediately what He's talking about. It's a spiritual baptism. It says in verse 27 again, for all of you who were baptized in Christ, and then look what it does. He says, have clothed yourselves with Christ. Now this equates the baptism he talks about, this spiritual baptism, with being clothed with Christ. He's speaking of our spiritual immersion into Christ and having become identified with who he is as he now lives in us. This is what he's talking about in Romans chapter 6. I've told you, you know, that Galatians is just Paul writing Romans mad. <laughs> and, in, and in Galatians, it's boop, 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 boop. But in, but in Romans, it's boop, and then he stops and explains. And then it's boop, and he stops and explains. And then boop. <laughs> I mean, this, the doctrine is all over here in, in Romans. In Romans 6 and verse 3, it says, Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. And the beautiful picture of this 
is if I had a bowl of red dye, I could explain it to you. A clear bowl of red dye. And I took a white cloth, and I'm going to put that white cloth down into that red dye. I immerse it into it, completely submerge it into the red dye. Now the cloth is in the dye. But the moment it gets inside the dye, something else happens, doesn't it? The dye gets inside the cloth. And the cloth is no longer a white cloth. There's been a change. Something has been identified with it. The red dye has entered into the cloth, and now you have a red cloth. That's exactly what he's talking about here. That spiritual immersion into Christ and Him into us. The spiritual baptism that he speaks of here is what he refers to in Ephesians. In Ephesians 4, 4, There is one body and one spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. He's not talking about water baptism. He's talking about the spiritual immersion into Christ. Now, this phrase that he equates us with, you have, been clo- you have clothed yourselves with Christ, is a graphic illustration of what happens at salvation. His presence, His power, all of who He is comes to live in us. It envelops the believer. You say, Wayne, I remember when I got saved, I had a lot of joy in my heart, but I didn't know this took place. <laughs> it's I back. Hey, by the way, I didn't write this. I mean, this is what God says took place. At the moment we were saved, where we felt it or didn't feel it, God came to live in us. And His presence now saturates our very being. I want to share something with you. There's no such thing as a believer who's not clothed with Christ. Can I say that again? There's no such thing as a believer who is not clothed with Christ. You say, wait a minute, wait, wait a minute. I, I know believers, and I've been one myself. And if you're telling me I'm clothed with Christ, I haven't lived that way all the time. And that's exactly the point in Galatians 3. Inwardly, we're clothed with Christ. You don't ever get any more of God than you're going to get at the moment of salvation. But is he seen outwardly? Remember Paul says in Philippians, work out your salvation. Let the Jesus who is on the inside be seen on the outside. And the same way that you are clothed with Christ by faith is the same way he's manifest that clothing in your life. He manifests his character in your life. I'll tell you what. As, as long as I pastor churches, and it'll be that way till Jesus comes back. You wonder sometimes if people know Christ from a hole in the ground. We sing the hymns, we sing the choruses, we walk right out and act as if we don't even know Him. And yet we're clothed with Christ. You see, this is the whole point. If it's going to be Christ living in you, then all that's within you begins to be manifested through your life. Paul says this to believers in Romans. He tells them, he says, Romans 13, 14. He says, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ. You already have put Him on. I know, inwardly. What he's saying is, put Him on as your behavior. Make sure He's manifested in your life. And he goes on and tells you how. And make no provision, provision for the flesh in regard to its lust. You see, they have put Him on. But now put Him on. It's, a, it's two different things here. At salvation, He came to live in you. And the clothing is there. The garment is there. Now wear the garment. And you wear the garment by saying yes to Him. He says the same thing in Ephesians 4 in verse 22. And he's really on, on these folks. He says that in reference to your former manner of life, your former behavior before you became a believer. You lay aside the old self. No, he's not saying, he's not contradicting himself. What he's saying is quit living as if you have never been clothed with Christ. But here in our text, Paul is referring to the clothing that took place when we were baptized into Christ. And that's a beautiful part here. Everything I need for life and for godliness, Peter says, I already have. He's given me uh, the ability to partake of the divine nature. 
You say, well, Brother Wayne, I, I talked to a church member last week and they didn't act like they were filled with a divine nature. <laughs> That's exactly right. And isn't that sad? Isn't it sad when people that are clothed with the very presence of Christ live as if they're the pagan that's next door? You see, when you are walking in His garments, when you are clothed in His garments, the flesh has no way and no will whatsoever. It's the Spirit controlling our lives. But the very moment we choose to resurrect that old flesh, it seems like it crawls off the altar every day, doesn't it? And when we choose to say yes to it, then it shuts the whole process down, even though we've been given everything that we need, everything in Christ. When I went to military school years ago, can you imagine me in military school? <laughs> My sense of humor caused me more problems when I was in military school. Probably helped me get through, but it also cost me. We had a drill sergeant that looked like a frog. I'm telling you, he looked like a frog. And I just had the, I don't know what was wrong with me, but I just kept telling him that. And this just was not a good thing. I ran more laps with my rifle over my head than anybody, I think, in the history of the school. Well, the word clothed here is the word enduo, which means to be dressed a certain way. When I got to military school, first thing they did was cut my hair off. I didn't have much anyway. They cut my hair off, and then they took my civvies, my, my regular clothes, put them in a box, and sent them home. And I was to wear a uniform every day. Why? Because we were identified with that school. And if you're going to be identified with that school, there's a certain garment that you have to wear. That's exactly what Paul's saying. Why is it? He's not talking about uniformity. We're all different. But he's talking about unity of the brethren. When we live, surrender to him. Why is it, you say? Well, we still have the chapter 5 to deal with. He'll tell you why. How the flesh wars against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. When everybody wears the same uniform, they all have the same identity. Now, what's his point here in the passage? Jew and Gentile alike are dressed in the same garment. If a person has received Christ by faith, then he's put Christ on as a garment, his nature, his presence, his power, that all wraps themselves around and envelops them. Now, his point is that under the law, if you go back up under the law, you have just chosen to deny your total identity in the Lord Jesus Christ. What does it mean to go back up under the law? When I choose my flesh over choosing him, I've just put myself under some kind of law because I'm going to either measure it or rebel against it. And what he's saying here is, if you do that, you've denied your identity. Your identity is in Christ. He adds in verse 28, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now his point here is not his point in other places. His point here is, when it comes to the privileges, when it comes to the power and the presence of God, everybody is equal when they come in and receive Him, the Lord Jesus Christ. This garment of Christ that's in us is our identity as believers. And when we say yes to Him, they see that garment on the outside. A race doesn't matter. It says in verse 28, there's neither Jew nor Greek, which is interesting because a lot of people still want to keep, keep those distinctions. Once you become a believer, you lose them. Uh, position in society does not matter. There's neither slave nor free man. Gender does not matter. There's neither male nor female. For you're all one in Christ Jesus. That's the common denominator. It doesn't matter where you go. You're one with other believers. And you're all, all of us are in the garments of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's interesting to me. Some people use the term fulfilled Gentile or maybe completed Jew. To me, they're erroneous terms. 
Let me show you why. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 32, it says, Give no offense either to Jews or to Greeks or Gentiles, or, he says, and he puts a third category, the church of God. You see, we become one brand new creature when we come into Christ. We, don't, we lose the distinction of being Gentile or Jew. That's what he's trying to say. We are now identified in Christ. We're not identified with race or, or sex or anything else. We're identified with Christ. Sons of God have a clear identity. And the purpose now that we have on, in, in, in this meantime living is to see Christians come to where they manifest that character in their life. We have a brand new garment. We was given it salvation. Here's my question to you this morning. Are you wearing that garment? Are you wearing that garment? When people hear you, when people are around you, do they see that garment? Are they affected by that garment? Over in Romania and in Russia, when they have the, the orphanages, they've never been in one, it's just, just to break your heart. But they have different rules and different ones, and this particular man up in Montana, pastor, wanted to adopt a little child from Romania. Well, the little child was about three years old, just, just able to, whatever age it is, they start talking. I don't know. If they're girls, they probably start at six months. But I forgot what age it was. <laughs> Boys would, but they just never get in a word edgewise. And so he was, this pastor was gonna, had to go. It was $15,000 he had to pay to, to adopt. He couldn't afford it, so they raised the money for him. And he, the church did. And he was able to pay the way. And so they flew a long distance. They had to go get that child. Paid a great price. When they got there, they, here's their custom. They had, them, had their little clothes in their hands. And uh, there was a washing to clean those little children. And, when, and what they did, it was beautiful. They wouldn't let any of the other children witness this. They put them in another room. Only the child that was being adopted and the parents that were adopting the child were a part of this little uh, procedure. And they, said, they told him to walk in with the clothes in their hands. And he said, when you see the child in rags as he comes down, you take the child, take his clothes off, and, and wash him down and put his new clothes on him, and then he'll leave with you. It was a beautiful, beautiful thing. And he said that was one of the most precious things. He said he couldn't fight the tears back. When he washed that little child down, took those rags off of him and put on those new clothes that they had bought for him, led that little child to the airplane, got on an airplane, flew all the way across an ocean. That little boy didn't know what an ocean was, didn't know what a plane was. All he knew was the, the, the feeble way of living that he had had. Took him all the way to Montana, one of the most beautiful states we have. Matter of fact, up near Kalispell, which is one of the most beautiful places, I think, in the United States. And they said the little boy was just able to talk just a little bit. And he learned quickly some of the phrases to identify his daddy. And they were afraid what he would do. They didn't know how he would respond in a church service. So the first time they brought him, they put him up in the balcony with his mama. They didn't really know what would happen, and they thought if he got a rowdy, she could take him out. And it said the pastor got up to preach and said that little boy jumped out of his seat and before his mother could catch him, ran down to the, uh, the railing there at the balcony and he looked down at his daddy and he said, that, there's my daddy, there's my daddy. And he said that preacher stopped and the tears gushed out of his eye. He said, yes, sir, and that's my son. That's my son right there. That's exactly what Paul's talking about. I want to ask you a question. I'm serious. I want to ask you a question. Do you live during the week that, if, that, if, that somebody, that God could point at you and say, that's my boy. That's my boy right there. That's my son right there. Look at him. He's clothed in my garments. Look at him. He's saying yes to me. Listen to what comes out of his mouth. It's not filled with poison. It's not filled with divisive things. This is somebody that, that really is serious about me. I believe all heaven rejoices when we start wearing the garment God has already given to us. 
believer has an eternal destiny. But I want to make sure we understand something clear. We as a church have a clear identity. We have an eternal destiny, but we have a clear identity. And the key is, and the challenge is, wear the garment. Wear the garment. Wear the garment. When I preached out of Ephesians, I began to ask them that question, what garment are you wearing? Matter of fact, the next time somebody walks up to you, it says something just a little bit uh, different. <laughs> ask them, what garment are you wearing? Why can't we get gut honest about this thing? Why can't we just get gut honest? We're either wearing it or we're not wearing it. Oh yeah, we have it, but are we wearing it? When I was preaching out of Ephesians, I had some parents come to me and say, Wayne, would you quit preaching out of Ephesians? I said, why? They said, we were coming to church today and we were arguing about something. And they said, our little children in the back leaned up and said, Mama, Daddy, what garment are you wearing? I think that ought to become a byword around Hoffman Town Church. What garment are you wearing? What garment are you wearing? Is your speech seasoned, seasoned with grace so it edifies and lifts up your brother? Is, is your character walking in the garment of Jesus Christ? Or is it just another flesh game that many of us are playing until Jesus comes back? Embracing a religion, but denying the power thereof. Well, thirdly, the sons of God have an awesome relativity. You just wonder where that came from. Well, hang on. We're more relative to history. We're more related to humanity than any person that lives on the face of this earth. You say, how do you know that? Well, I didn't write this. Look at verse 29. And if you belong to Christ then you are Abraham's offspring. You are an heir according to promise. The literal here is if you are of Christ, then you are seed of Abraham, heirs according to promise. Now being of Christ, we have become recipients of a promise that was given to Abraham 4,000 years ago. You think we don't relate to history? The God of all history, we're related to Him. We're sons. In his family. As a believer, we have a significance in history. And it's interesting how the world looks, looks at us. I was watching a uh, news program yesterday. I'd gotten in Friday night and just wanted to see if we're at war. Or, <laughs> you don't watch that when you're at camp. And I just had it on. And it was talking about this man who loves the camera and loves to be the center of attention. I don't forgotten now what the what, who, who he was and what he was doing. But at the bottom of it, 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 it popped up. It says, oh, by the way, this man is a, and everything they'd said was negative about him. said, by the way, this man is a born-again Christian. I thought to myself, does anybody on the news media even know what one is? And I'll tell you why they don't, because we haven't lived before them what they need to see. It's not a problem with them, folks. It's a problem with the fact that Christians are playing games with God. They're not walking in the garment God has given to them. They don't talk like they even know Christ. They don't act like they even no Christ. But yet we are related to all of history. We, we're, we're tied into a promise to a, of a covenant with Abraham. But not only that, we're related to all of humanity. You can go anywhere in this world and be related to somebody, no matter what race and what creed, if they're a believer. Whether they're Asian or whether they're whatever they are. Uh, we, we're related to them. I remember going into Ukraine, and we had not been into that area. And I was with Costello and Mia Oglici, as you met during our missions conference. And I remember going in there. We didn't know who to talk to, but we felt God leading us there to get the churches into the Word of God. They have no theology at all. It's about this deep and about this wide. 
I guess maybe they just took the example from us over here in America. They just don't know what they believe. They're, They're not willing to hear it. And so we went in looking for them. And we got to this place of Chernovsky. We didn't know where they would be. We went through all the roadblocks. They, they checked our car out, 13 hours at the Russian border. And when we got there, we asked this lady in the parking lot, the friend, friend with me speaking Romanian, said, uh, can you tell us where the believers are? And they said, you mean repenters? <laughs> and spit on the ground. <laughs> Wasn't it amazing how we're nobody in the media, but buddy, they steer away from us, don't they? Because something in us convicts them. Well, we, she pointed to this church, had a big steeple on it. We said, no, that's not what we're looking for. We already knew about that. And I said, do you know where any Baptists are? I had to go through a translator. And she said, I don't know what a Baptist is. And I thought I'd died and gone to heaven. We said, well, where are the believers? <laughs> she finally told us, she said, well, if you go 14 kilometers down the road, there's a little farmhouse, and that's where they meet. And tomorrow Sunday, you'll, see, you'll find them there. So the next morning, we weren't sure we could believe her or not. We had to buy her soap or she wouldn't have told us anything. Next morning, we went over to the local uh, religious structure, and we asked them where, the, where we could find some of these people, and they wouldn't even talk to us. So we decided, well, she may have been right. So we drove that 14 kilometers down the road, not knowing where we were going, not knowing anybody. We got to this one place to ask for the direction. We said, well, you, one of y'all help us. I said, who are you looking for? We said, the believers. He said, repenters? <laughs> Spit on the ground. He said, I'll, I'll take a bribe. By the way, we took bribes, buddy. I learned what it means in Proverbs. A man who takes a bribe is wise. <laughs> it's in our culture. We went on down the road a little bit of peace. He jumped out of the car. He said, I'm not going. I'm not going. I'm not going to be seen with you there. Pulled up and we tooted the horn. A man came out. Oh, man. And he opened up the gate and he was my brother. Man, Jesus was all over his face. You can spot a believer. You don't have to speak their language because they're dressed in the same garment you're dressed in. That's the commonality of all believers. Went inside that little house, house church. A man, 86 years old, was just standing there raising his hands while I would speak. I was teaching from James chapter 1, 2 through 4. And when I finished, he said, thank you, God. I'm ready to die. They were translating it for me. And I said, why would he say that? He said he's been praying for 25 years. Somebody come from America and teach him how to study the Word of God. They thought we had dropped in out of outer space or something. And it was a precious time. Why? They were believers. And they were believers. Isn't it awesome? Black, white, rich, poor, doesn't matter. If they've received Jesus, we're all identified with the same uniform. Christ lives in us. We, we have a relativity to history. It goes back to 4,000 years to Abraham and even before the foundations of the world because he knew us before the foundations of this world. But we're also rel- relative and related to humanity. Back in verse 13, we see again the cost. It says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs. On a tree. You see what Paul is doing? He's contrasting grace and law. And he's trying to show you, yes, law has its purpose, but let me just show you what Christ does. He makes you a son of God. And you can't be a son of God just because you're under the law. In fact, it doesn't do anything but put you under a curse. Let me ask you a question this morning. Now, I know traditionally in this service, everybody here knows the Lord Jesus. Is that right? Is that right? I don't know. I'm, not, I'm just not going to take your word for it. I wonder if you're here today and you joined the church years ago, but you have never bowed before the Lord Jesus and been dressed in the garment of the Lord Jesus Christ. I wonder if you are a believer here this morning. You have truly placed your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. You say, Wayne, I'm a little, I'm a little worried about what that means. I, I believe in him. I think I understand. No, no, no. There was a man who said he could walk across Niagara Falls, and he drove a stake on one side and drove a stake on the other side and put a cable between the two. If you've ever been to Niagara Falls, it's an overwhelming place. 
And this guy got up in front of a crowd of hundreds. They put the word out. How many of you believe that I can walk across this rope and walk back? Man, everybody raised their hands. And one guy's, Ethel, Ethel, get your camera out. What a wonderful picture, somebody falling off Niagara Falls. Like, Reach your hand up, man. We want him to do it. Nobody believed he could do it. So he, the guy gets up and, and takes that pole and puts it in his hand, and he truly walks across, true story, and walks back. Well, they, were, they didn't even clap. They were, they were sadness, like going to a car race and nobody wrecks. I mean, it's like, we, yeah, we believe, but we want to see somebody fall off the falls. Then he said, how many of you believe I can put a man in a barrel and push him across and push him back? Oh, this is it. Ethel, get your film ready. Two of them falling off, one holding on to one, one grabbing a wheel. What a picture. Yes, we believe. Oh, we believe. <laughs> Look down the front row, and here's one little lady just shaking her hand, six cameras around her neck. He says, hey, ma'am. Yeah, yeah, you. Yes, ma'am. Yes, sir. You got your hand up, you say you believe. Come on up here and get in the barrel. Let's show them. <laughs> she said, Oh, no, I had a cramp arm. I had a cramp arm. I said, I'm sorry. I didn't have my hand up. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. And all of a sudden, there's a lot of cramps in the arms. Nobody would raise their hand. You know why? Because you see, they didn't understand what faith is. You could talk about it till you fall over on the floor. But till you have bowed and received Jesus and gotten in the wheelbarrow, you haven't got a clue what salvation is. It's abandonment to him. Lord Jesus, I can't save myself. Lord Jesus, I abandon myself to you. That's how you come in. That's how you're clothed. And that's how you live every day of your life. Every day of your life. Lord, I can't. You never said I could. You can. You always said you would. Isn't it great to be a son of God? Are we walking in a garment? Or do you even have it to wear? Where are you this morning? For additional resources or to view our TV program, log on to jashow.org. That's jashow.org.